All right, well, I want you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at one verse today, verse 10. Ezra 7, 10. And we're studying uh, or starting a, a mini-series that I'm just titling Bible Study Methods. How to study your Bible or how to study the Bible. I guess that's the official title. Uh, Bible Study Methods was my... How do you study the Bible? I mean, most people would... would there would be a lot of questions just by that question uh, or that statement, right? How to study your Bible. And most of you might feel like, well, I don't feel like I know enough to study my Bible. Or I don't have time to study the Bible. Or I struggle with studying the Bible. Or I need somebody to explain things to me in terms of studying the Bible. Or why study the Bible? What does it do? How does it help us? Well, one of the things that you'll see on our sign when you came here was Mansfield Bible Church. It doesn't mean that we worship the Bible, I'm just saying. We worship Jesus Christ. We worship uh, our Heavenly Father. Uh, the Bible helps us in doing that. It was interesting that Beth Moore really sparked a controversy by making this statement. Spending time reading the Bible doesn't equate spending time with God. And she's right about that, but people didn't understand what she meant. And they really hammered her and said, no, the Bible's really important. And, she's saying, and so she came back and said, the Bible is the word of God, crucial to knowing him, but it's not God. And that didn't even satisfy people. And she came back and she says, my point is not studying scripture less. I am a proponent of daily Bible study. It is my practice, my life work, and my delight. My point is that we need God in our study of his word. I'm just saying don't leave Jesus out of Bible study. And when we read the scriptures, what we find is, is that we're either reading them like a textbook and we're just studying for information and we're studying to fill notebooks and we fill these notebooks or we fill these journals and then we do nothing with the information. As Howard Hendricks, a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary said, he said, the Bible wasn't written to make us smarter sinners, but to transform our lives. And he's right. And so I have to make a decision. Every time I open this book, every time I find it on my phone or on my iPad or whatever, I have to make a decision. Am I... Am I just reading this as a study? And I can tell you, as a pastor, it's easy to read it thinking, okay, what am I going to communicate next week to you guys? And what, what am I reading the Bible? I'm reading it for you. And God's saying, no, Buckles, I want you to read and I want you to apply it to your life as well as to other people doing the same. We all have the same requirement to, to study his word and to understand it and to live it out in our lives because it wasn't written to satisfy our curiosity. It was written to transform us, to make us more in the image of Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is my commitment to that? Am I, am, am I committed to, to studying his word and, and allowing the word to, to, to begin to become a part of me? In Deuteronomy 32, at the end of Moses' life, he makes this statement. That this is not an idle word which I've given to you. It is your life. And it really is. We've been given everything that we need for life and godliness in the word of God. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do with it? It's one of the most important books written in all time. It's translated in more languages than any other book in the history of the planet. It's, it's, uh, uh, goes, it's been around for 3,500 years. It stood the test of time, even under great attack. 
In 2004 in Canada, they, they, they created a law, and after they created this law, this was the title of the uh, news article the next day, Bible as Hate Speech Signed into Law. And I was thinking, wow, well, it's come to that. The scriptures are being seen as hate speech. And I think about the author who wrote this book, and he's not someone who hates us. For God so loved the world is the one who wrote this. We're not reading people's words about God. We're reading God's self-revealing, self-revelation, explaining and helping us to know who he is because otherwise, how would we know? We would only be able to look at creation. And Psalm 19 says, yeah, we can learn some things through creation, but there's things we cannot know. I could not know about the triune God through creation. I couldn't know the gospel that Christ saves by faith in him through creation. I only know it through the revealed word of God, that he reveals himself to me. And so it means that I need to understand it. I need to read it. The Bible, in spite of any attacks that it's had over the years, is still the most read book in history. In, uh, in America, 58% of people surveyed said they, they wish they would read their Bible more. They would love to read their Bible more. And I think, well, let's do it. <laughs> it's not that hard. If you just wanted to read the New Testament, you know how many chapters are in the New Testament? I said, if I, I said chapters, if it's books, it would be 27, right? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, 66 total. How many chapters? 260. So I Googled that this morning. What's 260 days from today? November 4th of this year. So if you read one chapter a day of the New Testament, you could finish the New Testament by November 4th. Now, even if you finished it November 5th, you'd still be way ahead than if you had made no plan at all. God says, uh, or Moses said, in, and God, uh, God said through Moses in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days and present to you a heart of wisdom. Well, you'll be more wise understanding God's word, reading the New Testament, if you just read one chapter a day. That's doable. But we have to understand it. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch was on the side of the road reading Isaiah in his chariot. And Isaiah is a pretty tough book anyway. And he's reading it, and Philip walks up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no, I don't have a clue. Unless somebody explains it to me, how could I understand it? And he explains to him, and he shows him where it's pointing to Jesus, and the Ethiopian comes to Christ. The Word of God transforms us. So the key is, is understanding it. I remember years ago, somebody giving me this illustration. He said, imagine a little baby, and you put him in a shopping cart, and you push that shopping cart into a grocery store, millions of dollars worth of food. If you just leave that baby in there, or even toddler in there, pretty soon it's going to starve to death. Why? Because they didn't know how to get at the stuff, doesn't know how to open the cans, doesn't know how to get the groceries, doesn't know how to cook any of them. And he said, that's the way most believers in Christ are. We're like this little baby in a grocery store. We've been given everything that we need for life and godliness, and we don't know how to get at it. 
We don't know how to understand it. And when we do understand it, we don't always do it. And I think if, if it's simple, if I want to read my Bible more and I just read a chapter a day, I can finish the New Testament, why wouldn't I do that? This uh, weekend, we were at a conference, a linger conference. And it was great, great conference. A lot of worship. We had uh, Shane and Shane uh, do music. We had uh, Phil Wickham. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, they had um, uh, Lauren Daigle. And I think, you know, they, they have these different uh, musicians. And then also they have uh, uh, people who, who teach during those times. Great speakers, really challenging. And one of them pulled up a check. And he said, before the conference started, he uh, gave... Uh, uh, sent out in the mail randomly to 10 people who were at the conference a check for $10. And out of those $10 checks, those 10 $10 checks, how many of you, uh, how many of those do you think got cashed out of the 10? Hold up your hand. Uh, one, I see. Anybody else? How many do you think? Put your hands up, you know, show me a number. Two. Who else? Five or seven. Uh, two were cashed. Two. Most people thought that something was up. You know, maybe this is a scam. One guy sh- uh, was sitting in the front row. He says, oh, you got one of those checks? He said, what did you do with it? He said, I shredded it. <laughs> shredded it. Two guys cashed it, and the two guys that cashed it, he sent them another check for $10, which they quickly cashed as well. And, and, and he made the comment when he, was, when he was talking to us, he says, this is full of checks that are uncashed. The promises of God that many times we either don't understand and so we don't do that, we don't ask for God to fulfill. And it's, it's like all these uncashed checks because either we don't know they exist or we're afraid to ask. And so you look at that and you realize uh, when we look at Ezra, we've got to ask some questions about him. Why did he study the word of God? Look at this verse, Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Simple verse. He committed himself. Now, I asked the question, why would he do that? And you think, oh, because it's the word of God, right? Well, I want to give you a little background because it will raise a question in your mind as to why he might have been studying this. If you look at the overall book of Ezra, because the question is, is, where does Ezra fit? And where do these things fit? And we have to ask ourselves, in fact, let me back up just a minute. When we do Bible study, change to the other one. There's three questions that we need to ask ourselves. Every time, this is the big overview. Anytime you pick up the scriptures, three questions. First question, what does it say? What does the text say? What's there? What can we observe? Many of us see, but we don't observe. We see the words, but we don't pay attention to what they mean. In fact, we usually ask the second question first. We say, what does it mean? And so we pick up our Bibles, and we're in a Bible study together, and we say, well, what does this mean? And somebody looks up from it and goes, well, I think it means, right? That's the next thing. We, I think it means, and if you ask the question, well, what does the text say? You see this number. Um, well, let's see. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, it says this. And then all of a sudden you get a little insight. 
And so we got to ask that first question, what does it say? And if we ask the question, what does it mean? The answer is, well, what does it say? we got to go back. Observation is one of the most important things. You observe well, you'll have a good interpretation, and the, and the result will be great, which is the third one. How does it work? Not does it work. Scripture works. How does it work is the question. And so when we get into the Word of God, when we begin to study it, we need to ask those three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it work? It's observation, interpretation, and application. That's the big overview for Bible study methods. Now, why would, why would that be important for us to understand how to study our Bible? Did you know uh, that uh, how to study your Bible is, is, is Googled a lot uh, on the Internet? If, uh, if I were to ask you how many times you think the... Uh, the phrase, how to study your Bible or something similar, comes up, how many times do you think per month people Google that? Would you say 50,000? Maybe 75,000 would be a lot? 538,000 times a month. 6 million times a year in a decade. 60 million times it's Googled. People want to know, how to understand the scriptures. They, want, they don't want to be the baby in the supermarket pushed in there. And you think, okay, if you got the three big questions, those kind of give you some direction. And so we begin to ask that about our passage here today. The question that comes back to is, why did Ezra devote himself to study? And here's why I ask that question. When you look at the chart of the uh, book of Ezra, you see that I've also included Nehemiah. And I've also got the book of Esther underneath. Because you see, the first six chapters uh, uh, deal, uh, in fact, the whole, those three sections right there, Ezra 1 through 6, Ezra 7 through 10, and Nehemiah, have three returns. That's the title, three returns back to Israel. Let me give you a little history of what happened before this so you understand why there's three returns. Israel had problems, uh, and, ten, uh, and they, they ended up in a civil uh, split, civil war, so to speak. They split, and you had the northern kingdom, 10 tribes, called Israel. The southern kingdom called Judah. Assyria in 722 comes in, swoops in, takes, uh, uh, overtakes the northern uh, country of Israel and scatters them throughout the Assyrian empire, scatters them, and brings in other people into that northern part of the area who later became Samaritans. Then you have the southern kingdom in 586. Babylon sweeps in under Nebuchadnezzar and destroys Jerusalem. And their strategy was different. Assyria thought you could control a people by just scattering them and then they couldn't gather and create problems. Babylon had a little different strategy. They thought, we'll take the nobles, we'll take the leaders, and we'll take them all the way to Babylon. And then they can't lead in rebellion. Well, Babylon fell to the Persians, and the king of Persia that destroyed the Babylonian kingdom was named Cyrus. So Billy Ray <laughs> Cyrus <laughs> ended up wanting to send people back to their homelands, and so they began to send the Jews back. And that first return uh, in Ezra chapters 1 through chapter 6, 
was a guy named Zerubbabel. In fact, I was really glad that they named the book after Ezra and not after Zerubbabel. I mean, that would have made it really tough when you're singing the little song, you know, and trying to remember the books of the Bible, right? And then you have this four-syllable Zerubbabel in there somewhere. Ezra is a lot easier to fit in. And so you got Ezra, and they rebuilt the temple during that time of Zerubbabel. And then we see chapter 7, and we almost think chapter 7 is just immediately after chapter 6, but it's not. There's a 58-year gap in there, during which time there was the best times, uh, New York Times bestseller, uh, Esther. The book of Esther was written. Incredible book. If you haven't read Esther, I encourage you to do so. And so... Esther happened during that 58-year period how God preserved the Jewish nation in the Persian kingdom uh, uh, even though they had not left. So with the first return, 50,000 people went back. They rebuilt the temple. People were alive uh, during that time of the rebuilding of the temple and they wept because they had seen Solomon's temple and they knew how glorious it was and they saw the foundation of this new one and thought, this is nothing in comparison. But then you got another 58 years. The people during chapter 7 and following had never been to Jerusalem. They had never seen it. They hadn't seen the old temple. They didn't remember the old ways. They hadn't seen the sacrifices around the temple and all the ceremony. Not even Ezra. So my question was, when I thought about that, 128 years later, can you imagine that? I mean, you think about our country existing 200 years, and that's over half of that? 128 years. Why would he even study the scriptures? Why would he be motivated? In chapter 1, he talks about King Cyrus. King Cyrus was mentioned by name by Isaiah. Isaiah 45. Verse 13, he's mentioned by name. Isaiah wrote 144 years earlier. It was fulfilled prophecy. Cyrus, mentioned by name. I would imagine that if I was Ezra, I would get excited about that and say, God cashed a check. He promised Cyrus would come along. And that promise in verse 13 says the city would be rebuilt of Jerusalem. And he's going, wow, if that check is cashed, what other ones are there? It motivates you when you see God fulfilling his word. That was one of the reasons why in December 23rd, I talked about how God fulfilled his word in Jesus Christ in Daniel and some other places. If you didn't hear that message, go back and listen to it. It gives me goosebumps whenever I read those things. I read the scriptures and I see how God fulfills them. And I go, wow. He is a God who keeps his word. He speaks and he, and he does it. And so when I look at that, I realize Ezra comes along. He's studying God's word and he goes and, and, God, and he's the one that God uses to create revival and to reform the people. And then Nehemiah comes along 13 years later. Ezra's still there, by the way. You read the book of Nehemiah, you see Ezra mentioned and he rebuilds the walls. The city is rebuilt like God had promised. And so Ezra became this guy who studied God's word, and you think, yeah, but he's professional clergy. I mean, look at that. He's of the line of Aaron, uh, for crying out loud. In chapter 7 and verse 5, and I won't read a whole list of names of son ofs, but uh, in verse 5 it says, he's the son of Aaron, the chief priest. That's, that's Moses' brother. 
That's the one who all the priests were supposed to follow the line of Aaron. And he says, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law, of the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And he says that again uh, in verse uh, 9. He says, for the gracious hand of God was on him. And so he was willing because he understood the word of God, he understood what God was going to do, that he was willing to go back 900 miles, women and children. It took him four months, we see uh, in verse 8. Four months to get back. And you look at this map of, of what they traveled. Uh, and he has to travel along the Euphrates River. He can't just go straight across desert. They would all die. And so he goes along the Euphrates River, and he takes a little bit of a shortcut compared to that green line where uh, that was the line of... Um, of uh, Zerubbabel, I believe. Uh, and then uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah took the little shorter route, and yet it was still a four-month journey. If they'd have been an army, they could probably have made it faster, but because they had to take a different pace, uh, because they had so many women and children. So you have to ask the question is, is, well, this guy was a professional teacher of the line of Aaron. He was a priest. What about us? Can we understand God's word? Absolutely. In 1 Corinthians 2, Verses 12 to 16, it says, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand what God has freely given us. He's given us his word. We have the spirit of God. When you receive Christ as your savior, we receive the spirit of God. And when you have the spirit of God within you, you have the one who wrote the scriptures, we're told in Peter. Men moved by the spirit spoke from God. So we have the one who wrote these things under, helping us to understand his word. Uh, and in John 16, Jesus says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so we have the spirit of God guiding us in truth. We can understand the scriptures uh, and we just need the toolbox that will help us to understand what it is that we're supposed to do. And the key is observing well. Now, I, when you got, came here today, you were supposed to have been given a little slip of paper. Pull that out now. You have that slip of paper with all the squares on it, and it has a simple question, how many squares? And so don't shout out here. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. First question, how many of you saw 16 squares? Some of you? Yeah, you saw 16, okay. You may have seen more, but you saw at least 16, right? Then you look at it again and you realize the whole thing is a square, right? Ah, 17. So how many saw 17 squares? Okay. Then some of you may have noticed that if you take it two by two, you end up with a square there. And so you end up with one top left, two by two, that's a square. And in the middle, two by two, that's a square. And two by two and... And you can do that three times across there. So now you got nine more. So how many of you saw um, uh, nine, and 20, uh, nine and 17, 26 squares? Some of you. And then if you take three by three, you've got four more. So how many of you saw 30 squares? Let me see the hands of those who thought, hold them up high. Yeah, just as I thought, I'm going to have to do a series on lying. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just had to say that. I couldn't resist. But you look at that and you think, okay, here we need to observe well. So what do we observe about 
Ezra. In this simple verse, well, we've already observed that he, he saw God fulfill his word, and so he's motivated to study the scriptures, even though he's never seen some of the things that he's reading about and studying about. But because he did this study, Artaxerxes says, this guy knows his stuff. I'm sending him back to get the religious system going so they can pray for us. This is basically part of the reason for that. It says, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study, observance, and teaching. Three things he devoted himself to. He committed himself. So what does that word devoted mean? It means he, it's, it's a, a word that means to set his heart. He set his heart to study. He set his heart to understand. And so he set his heart firmly. He directed his attention to the study of the law of God. Now, we have 39 Old Testament, 27 New. We have 66 books of the Bible, right? If you were to study one book of the Bible per month, you could study every book in the Bible in five and a half years, right? And so you look at that and you think, um, uh, that's, that's worth doing, right? Worth taking that time if you just study. And I would encourage you, make a commitment to either read one chapter a day until November 4th or study one book a month. In a decade, you could get through every book of the Bible twice. And you would know them pretty well. So Ezra, he set his heart to study. He set his heart to understand. He set his uh, heart, he set, directed his attention to the study. The word study that's used here in the Hebrew carries the idea of reading uh, repeatedly. And some of these times that I mentioned the Hebrew, you can, you can find a lot online. If you wanted that chart that I I showed you, you could find a similar chart by just Googling chart of Ezra. I mean, there's so many resources out there that you can get to, but it, it says read repeatedly. If you read the scriptures and you read this passage, say in, in your version, and then you read it in another version, and then you read it in a third version, and you read it repeatedly, and you, you just take a few notes, you'll, you'll notice things that you never noticed before. It says to, uh, the word means to beat a path to, to frequent that's the word study. So he committed his heart, he set his heart, he set his purpose to study God's word, to understand it. And then he set his heart to obey it. He set his heart to obey it. One of the things that we find is that when we read the scriptures, if we read them but don't apply them, they're not useful to us. And in fact, if we read the word of God and the spirit of God convicts my heart and then I ignore it, what am I doing? I'm hardening my heart to the conviction of the spirit of God through his word. Because I'm practicing, here's my practice if I'm doing that. Read, be convicted, ignore. Read, be convicted, ignore. And my heart becomes hard. How do I have my heart become soft? Read, be convicted, and do. That's what the word literally means. It says observance. It means do. Do it. Do the scriptures. When you get convicted about something, do it. Carry it out. When you, if you're getting convicted, uh, and I get convicted every time I read about Ezra, 
I get convicted. Study, understand, apply it. I can tell you it's just as easy for me as a pastor to not apply it as it is for you. You know why? Because I find myself, even in my quiet times, reading and go, oh, this would make a great passage to use to, to, to teach those people how to apply God's word. <laughs> and God goes, eh. Buckles, I wrote this for you. Because how can you give it to the pe- my people unless you're applying it to your life first? How can I export it if I don't have it? And so I'm convicted over and over. I need to be applying God's word. I need to be living it out in my life. And in fact, uh, there was a, a Stephen Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People uh, wrote this. He says, to learn and not to do is really not to learn. To know and not to do is really not to know. When I was a college student in, in, uh, 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 back in the day, uh, I'm not going to go into what, how long ago that was, but uh, when, I, when I was a college student, I would work these summer jobs and all these guys would make fun of us college students. They weren't, they'd never gone to college and, and they were making fun of us because you guys don't know how to live life and you don't know how to do this and you don't know how to use these simple tools and they were right. Because we had all this head knowledge, but no practical knowledge. And I appreciate, even though I was humbled, I didn't like it at the time, I appreciate knowing, hey, I, need to, I, I can't just be book smart. I can't be just spiritual smart. I need to live it out in my life. And we need to live it out. And it needs to be part of us. In Acts 2.42, uh, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to the apostles' teaching. Jesus said in John 14.21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he it is that loves me. You know, I can give God a lot of lip service, but when I live it out, when I do what he asked me to do, and I think, well, wait a minute, but I, I can't do this on my own. And God goes, I know that. That's why I gave you my spirit so that you can understand what my word is and so that you'd have the power to carry it out. And so we need to rely on him and that's part of what we learn. How to live life, trusting the spirit of God through the difficult seasons of life, during the difficult things that we face in this life. And then he taught it. It says he studied and he observed it and he says, into teaching. He, was, he set his heart to teaching. And you think, wait a minute. I know that verse in James that says, not many of you should become teachers because they're under greater accountability. I'm not sure I want to go there. And I think, wait a minute. That's, that's, he just, James says that because he wants teachers to be committed to study. That's really what he's saying there. And he's talking about the person who teaches publicly. We're all called to be teachers. All of us who have kids... Deuteronomy 6 says we're supposed to be teachers. These commandments that I have to you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Have spiritual conversations is what he's saying. In Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. And he says, you're like infants. We're supposed to all be teachers. If we're going to disciple people like what Andrew Duran is doing, he's, he's talking to, 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 to those students about keeping Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to observe. We're all called to be teachers. It may not be teaching up front in front of a lot of people. It may be one-on-one. We're all called to be teachers, to impact other people's lives. And so when we come to this passage and we look at Ezra, may we become like Ezra. May we be those who devote ourselves to studying God's word. And that doesn't mean spending hours a day necessarily, but spending some time every day, a daily devotion with the Lord, reading one chapter a day for, until November 4th. Maybe that is it. Maybe your study is, okay, you're going you're gonna, to uh, uh, read uh, and study one chapter, or I mean one book of the Bible for 30 days. And then you're going to pick the next one and you're going to just keep moving through the scriptures. Whatever that is that God is laying on your heart, I know that one thing that he wants us all to do is to know his word. It's his love letter to us. It's how he tells us that he loves us and he cares about us, that he sent Jesus to die for us. It's where he's given us his great and precious promises. Let's cash those checks. Let's understand them first and then let's cash them. Lord, we come before you now. And we thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us all that we need for life and godliness, and yet so many times we live in poverty spiritually because we don't mind the truths that you have given us here. Lord, I pray that we'd make a commitment, each one of us, right here, right now, to know your word. And knowing your word... We're going to learn more about Jesus because I know Jesus says you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life and it is these that tell of me. Lord, help us when we study the scriptures to look for Jesus. Help us to get to know Jesus more and closer, more dearly, more intimately because we spend time reading what their spirit wrote about him. Father, I pray that you would grow us in our faith, grow us in our understanding, grow us in our application of the word of God to our lives and help us, help us to get into spiritual conversations where we can share what we've learned about you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.